Welcome to the Good Life Central Oregon podcast, where we pursue the good life by helping you pursue yours. The good life begins with a roof over your head, so please contact our sponsors for this podcast, Remax Revolution and Sisters. Remax is the number one real estate company in the world, and Remax Revolution offers new solutions for better results. Go to ilovecentraloregon.com to find out more. Well, I am sitting in a beautiful living room in Bend, uh, on the west side uh, with a fantastic backyard that is in progress, um, but uh, we'll save that story for another time. <laughs> I'm sitting here with uh, an old friend of mine uh, named Rose Archer. Uh, she is a, uh, a notable chef in Bend. She traveled all over the world um, and, uh, and a business person, and, uh, and with any luck, uh, maybe there will be a book deal in the future, um, but I think there's more to come. Uh, but uh, there's a story that began this journey, uh, and I, that's what we're here to find out. Hi, Rose. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. <laughs> my pleasure. Will you introduce yourself to everybody? Sure. My name is Rose Archer. I grew up in Hawaii. I'm one of six children from crazy hippie parents. <laughs> they still are to this day. I'm not giving it up. <laughs> Going nice. the long haul on that. Nice. Um, I have a three-year-old son. I'm married to a wonderful man named Stephen. I've lived in Bend for just over 10 years. Awesome. Um, so you brought up your hippie parents. Um, let's, let's just start at the beginning. Uh, where in Hawaii? The island of Maui. That's Maui. where I grew up until I was 18. Uh, where in Maui? Up country mostly. Up country, okay. Rolling hills. Okay. And tell us about your life growing up in, in Maui. It sounds like a fantasy that we all dream about, but my understanding is it was not quite what we have in mind. Uh, will you share with us about your... Uh, your upbringing? Sure. So Hawaii is everything that it looks like on the commercials or for the people who've been lucky enough to go and visit there, but there's a whole kind of other side to Hawaii that's not as out in the forefront. Um, and in the 70s, when my parents moved there, um, they actually met on uh, McKenna Beach in a nudist colony. And in the 70s, there was a huge hippie culture out there. It was a great place to go and be a nudist and get away from society. And I think about the sunburns, though. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure they didn't believe in sunscreen. Yeah, I'm sure. More like baby oil. <laughs> yeah, probably. Right. Or my mom used to rub uh, papaya skins on her body. Yeah. Uh, don't, how, look, how, don't look so shocked. <laughs> how, how well did that work? Yeah, Jeremy's speechless. <laughs> we need to have video of these so you can yeah, see your face. That just brings a whole new meaning to fruit salad. <laughs> <laughs> we might need to start over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Um, hi. Uh, welcome to the Good Life Center Oregon podcast. <laughs> Anyway, where were we? Uh, Nudist Beach in McKenna. Okay. So my parents went there. Um, They met in this news colony. They had a load of kids. And um, as every good hippie would have it, they got on welfare and remained. My mom has been on welfare for 35 years. And um, so for me, growing up in that, there was part um, magical uh, camping on beaches and, uh, you know, hiking in caves and waterfalls, and then the other side of it of you're growing up on welfare, and no matter where you live, that's going to be hard. I would say the good thing about being on welfare in Hawaii is that the, um, the status between classes is less evident there because it's an island. Um, wealthy people wear 
bikini tops and cut-off shorts and flip-flops, and poor people wear bikini tops, cut-offs, and flip-flops. So that was a little bit easier, and things like heating bills and coats and shoes that a lot of people here in Central Oregon suffer from lacking without is not going on in Hawaii. Hmm. Was, was there any um, difficulty being a Howley living on the islands or growing mm-hmm. up in the islands, or were you local because you were born there? Nope, Howley, no Howley. matter what. No matter what, always yep. Howley. Yep. And Did you have any issues with locals in that regard? Absolutely. I grew up, um, I'm extremely outspoken and outgoing as an no. adult. I, truly, I know you don't know that about me, but I am. Uh. But um, <laughs> growing up, I was super quiet, and it was mostly because of this. Um, you know, I was a minority in a dark-skinned population. White mm-hmm. people are minority. And it's, uh, I'd imagine it's still going on, but when I grew up, it was quite an aggressive um, racism against white people and so I wouldn't raise my hand in class even if I knew the answer because after school I'd have some local girls telling me that you know I thought I was so smart and Mm. do I want to fight and whatever Uh, so afraid of riding the back of the bus afraid of you know entering into a room with all locals so it wasn't just that you were rejected you were accosted absolutely Mm. yeah there's a beat up howly day every year at public schools in Hawaii and they mean what they say. So all the Howleys ditch school on that day. Interesting. Mm. Uh, yeah. So uh, the fantasy is, is uh, starting to, to uh, dissipate. Um, hippie parents, career, welfare. I mean, I, I can only assume that was a choice, that they chose to remain in welfare, or was there another dynamic uh, Yes and no. My mom um, didn't graduate from high school and had six children. So anything that any job she could have acquired, she wouldn't make enough to support all of us. Gotcha. So there was this trade-off between, you know, am I gone constantly from my children or do I get on welfare and stay home? Okay. Okay. And so the growing up white in Hawaii and then growing up, uh, you you kind of alluded to the magic of camping on the beach, but yet you were poor. Uh, How did, how did that play out? I mean, it, it sounds a little bit bittersweet. Definitely. Uh, we were homeless at multiple times in my childhood, sometimes um, forced upon us and sometimes by my mom's own choice. Um, she loved the outdoors. She loved camping. So if we were homeless, we would just kind of set up camp for a while at a beach and come and go. We had cars and we would just come and go from the beach. Which, I'll, you know, if I had to be homeless, I think Hawaii would <laughs> be where I'd want to go. Absolutely. You know, I mean, it's, you Absolutely. know. Um, what kind of impact did that have on your life growing up in at least trepidation, if not fear, but also having to having the instability of, of home? Well, I would say that it, I think people go one of two ways. Uh, you either continue the pattern and remain in your same hometown and follow in your parents' footsteps, or you go the opposite way. And I chose the opposite way. Um, wasn't interested in drugs or alcohol in high school, like a lot of my peers, was very interested in a career, very interested in not repeating the same mistakes my mother made. And I felt like I had the ability to learn from her mistakes. It wasn't something I had to do myself to get the lesson. And I knew I didn't want children out of wedlock. I knew I wanted a career to be able to support myself. I wanted stability. I wanted a home. I wanted my own, to earn my own money, to make my own way. Did the rest of your siblings make the same choice? Mm, Not all of them. Um, A few of my brothers got very involved in drugs, were homeless drug Mm. addicts in high school. 
Um, and all of them, thank goodness, are out of it now. Um, uh, I have an older sister who's very driven like I am, and she went to college, um, and she's currently in law school in her late 30s. Hmm. Just a career change for her, but wow. she's very driven. Good for in her. Los Angeles. Yeah. Good for her. Were there other families, other kids in your similar situation, being Hallie, being homeless, being camping out a lot? Tons. Tons? Tons, yeah. What would you say the breakdown on the percentage of kids who made a positive choice as opposed to just falling into hmm. what well, they'd known? If I look on my Facebook page and see all these people who've friended me from my high school days, and a lot of them are still there, and I'm not sure if they're doing drugs, but I definitely know that they're working you know, $10 an hour jobs and haven't left Maui and are living, you know, in small rentals mm-hmm. throughout the island. Their desire to stay on Maui has, it's pretty limited options in Hawaii. Um, there's not a lot of culture other than Hawaiian culture. You know, jobs are limited. Mm-hmm. It's expensive to live there. Very expensive to live there. Mm-hmm. We have some friends that are moving back from Hawaii because it's like $500 a month just to cool the place. Yes. Um, yeah. and, and that's just one bill. Um, so is it fair to say that your upbringing, your childhood was bitter and sweet? Absolutely. Yeah. I was telling you earlier that, um, you know, I, like most teenagers, rebelled completely against my parents and everything they stood for and, and wanted to go as far away from my upbringing as possible. And um, I have uh, gotten over the shame of being a hippie, but as a teenager, the mortified, you know, that my parents were hippies. And was going to just go get a degree and go get a career. And I was going to have an apartment that every single thing was white and not the clutter of a hippie, you know, rainbow tie-dyed life. Did your parents ever introduce you as like, yeah, this is our right-wing capitalist daughter. You have to excuse her. (laughs) Oh, gosh. I hope so. That would be awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Of course, I'm not. Uh, So to continue with that thought... I grew up and uh, I went, you know, kind of big, huge arc and went far, far away from my parents' beliefs. And the older I get, I find myself actually incorporating more and more of their beliefs into my beliefs as an adult and um, things that are attributed to maybe a hippie um, stereotype, you know, things such as shopping at the health food store, um, organic gardening, uh, questioning our government, Believing in equality of all things and freedom of speech for all people are all now very much a part of my life. And I definitely attribute that to lessons learned from my childhood. And I'm really happy to have them. So it's kind of interesting in, um, uh, or interesting dichotomy that you, you live in a generally nicer area of Bend. You've married a successful man and, and you're successful in your own right as well to hear you say that you're kind of becoming a little bit more hippie is it just the organic produce and questioning the government and driving a vw van on occasion or is there more to it is there more coming i think there's more coming hmm. and that could be a whole other hour podcast yeah sure oh, yeah okay <laughs> we'll we'll do part two. We'll do part two it's funny my um my father often says that generally speaking that the older people get in his experience they tend to get more conservative and it sounds like you're telling me that as as you get older, you're becoming more liberal or just more you know, open-minded? To get a tad political, I'm very disillusioned uh, by the Democratic Party, even though I would have identified as a Democrat mm-hmm. for the last 10 years, um, more for social reasons uh, than anything else. But I also am not fully, you know, I wouldn't choose to be a Republican either. So I think there needs to be a new, a new party. 
for people like me. Okay. Fair enough. So, well, and, and not to avoid politics, but you know, that's not what this podcast is about. However, you did bring up the, the, the social aspect of it. What, what is your, you've kind of gotten to see a a diverse array of life and and we're going to get into the rest of your uh, life's experiences after high school in, in just a minute. But, um, you've kind of seen the homelessness and you've seen the success and, and, and having nicer things. Um, what's your take on the ideal utopian, socially responsible society? I will say from growing up in welfare and seeing how poorly that system is run, for example, say my mother got $2,000 a month on welfare and she got a part-time job and she earned $500 a month. They would just remove $500 from the $2,000 she's used to getting. So essentially she was at zero Mm -hmm. for working or not working. It was no different. She got the exact same amount of money. So she was encouraged to not work. She was penalized for trying to be responsible. Absolutely. And I think that welfare is absolutely necessary as a stopgap for people who are about to fall over the edge. And we, I know we're going to talk about the nonprofit that I'm on the board of that um, addresses some of these issues. But I think that they need, the programs need to be reformed. They mm. need to be more inclusive of um, celebrating and encouraging people to become self-sustainable. And that's not happening right now. Well, that would be a nice little teaser trailer for our, our uh, conversation in, in a little bit, because I definitely want to talk about your your uh, role with a fan. Um, but real quick, I, can I ask you what your birth name was? Newly Fallen Snow Walton. And I think that was so interesting. Not even Rose. Not even Rose. Rose is a whole new name. Yeah. And so, <laughs> and so, you're, so when you were born, your name was Newly Fallen Snow. Mm-hmm. Um, when did you change your name and why? So um, I grew up, I, the, I was actually born in Washington State. I wasn't born in Hawaii. Okay. And I moved to Hawaii when I was five. So it's really almost all that I know. So I consider it, you know, my hometown. But okay. um, I was born in Washington State up near the Canada border in a county called Republic. Huge hippie community out there. They have rainbow gatherings and, you know, communes. And my parents were on a commune out there. And um, lots of snow, as you can imagine. Yeah. And, uh, I think it's a genetic trait, but my cheeks turn flush, bright pink in cold weather. And they still do to this day. And my mm-hmm. adorable three-year-old sons do as well. <laughs> so I was called rosy cheeks as kind of a nickname when I was two years old, three years old and traipsing around in the snow. And then it got shortened to Rosie. And that was just my nickname. Everyone called me Rosie. And when I was five, we moved to Maui. And my parents uh, had a vision, the same dream in the middle of the night that told them we need to start going to Catholic church. So we started Interesting. Going, yeah, total raging hippies. We showed up with, you know, seven kids in a station wagon and tie dyes and said, we want to start going to church. Well, way to go big. Yeah, go big. And um, so we started going to church and my mom decided that we all needed uh, Catholic names, that this was a whole new life and that we were going to have Catholic names. So I was between five and six years old and she took out a huge, thick enormous book um, of patron saints. And she said, pick your name. So <laughs> I sat with this enormous book and uh, you know, my nose is barely up to the table's edge and I'm peering down over this huge book and I'm turning these like massive pages and looking at all the different saints and just trying to figure out what one I was going to choose. And there was St. Rose of Lima 
And because I, my nickname was already Rose and I mm-hmm. liked it, I chose St. Rose of Lima, um, partly because it was my name and also because she was young and birds liked her, which was very important to me at five. The animals very landed princess on her like. hands. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, um, so I chose St. Rose of Lima and went by Rose, not legally, but socially, um, the rest of my life. And when I got married in my 20s, I legally changed my name to Rose as my first name and uh, Fallen Snow as my middle name. Is, so is that still your middle name? Mm-hmm. Interesting. So my driver's license says Rose Fallen Snow Archer. I'll bet most people out there listening right now cannot claim anything remotely close to that. I think that's... Yeah, it's pretty bizarre. I have, Wait. And don't forget, I have six brothers and sisters, so I'm not the only one with this amazing story. We all have that in common. So I have a brother named Mountain Wind, who uh, his name is now St. Dominic or Nick. He goes by Nick. Okay. What about the rest of them? Uh, I have a brother named uh, Siddhartha Oneheart, after the Buddhist mm-hmm. Siddhartha. And um, he went by St. Christopher for a long time. He was Chris. He has now chosen to go back uh, to his original name, and everyone calls him Sid with two Ds. Uh. S-I-D-D. Um, I have a sister um, who was Isis Dawn, um, based on the Egyptian goddess Isis. Mm-hmm. And um, she chose Queen Elizabeth was a saint, sainted, so she was Beth her whole childhood, and she is a high up person in the tech world, and she has gone back to ISIS, and it's fantastic. People are trip, trip out constantly. How funny. Yeah, it's great. Well, and it's funny, they're, you know, they're, you know, you, I have kids, you have kids, mm-hmm. or a child, and there's, there's a, um, we're getting off topic, but that's okay. I have proprietary, uh, um, <laughs> prerogative on this one, but, um, you know, there, it seems like there's a uh, a desire for people to find names that are unique without being. Well, there are some people that are come up with names that are a bit out there, but but uh, trying to come up with names that are unique mm-hmm. and not. Well, you know. so I thought that's what I was doing. I have said my entire life I will never name my son Chris, John, Matt, Steve. You know, all these common, common biblical names. names. Yeah. And I was like, I'm never going to do that. I want my child to have a unique name. Not so unique that they f- are embarrassed, but not like everyone else. And so we picked Aiden, only to find out that it is the number one name for boys in America <laughs> for multiple How years. Funny. So when he's uh-huh, 10, jokes on you. he's going to be John or Chris, except yeah. for yeah. this day and age. Well, it's funny, bef- yeah. before my daughter was born, I, uh, I really, I've always liked the name Grace. And uh, like a month before she was born, there were like 20 graces born at St. Charles. Mm. And I thought, well, there goes that one. (laughs) Next. Um, Anyway, back to our story. Um, The, with your upbringing, childhood, uh, the bittersweetness of it, what were some of the highest high points and lowest low points? I would say the highest high point of my childhood was even though my mother and I may have disagreed on a ton and I disagree with her parenting style and you know her philosophy she it has instilled in me an incredibly deep profound respect for women you know she's definitely a feminist. Mm-hmm. And um, that has followed me through with having a deep sense of self-respect for myself. And I've used that in school, in my career, and through my life. And 
couple that with the natural beauty that growing up on an island provides. I would ride the school bus and there'd be waterfalls tumbling down rock cliffs outside my school bus window yeah, every no big single deal. day to school. Yeah. So my, how much I cherish nature and beauty and how much respect I have for women in my fight to, for equality for women are parts about my personality that I really love and I directly attribute those to my mother's upbringing. And what about the downside? What were some of the hardest times that you remember or some of the lowest points? Well, my parents got divorced when I was five, so we moved back to Maui um, when I was five and they were separated. And so my mom was a single mother on welfare with six kids for a majority of my life with you know random boyfriends coming in and out mm-hmm. and a stepdad at one point for a few years. But um, there was just not seriously, seriously not enough love to go around. So just not enough time, not enough energy. And so I felt um, rather ignored most of my childhood. Um, I wasn't a bad kid. I didn't get in trouble, so I didn't get attention from negative behavior. Mm-hmm. I wasn't, you know, I didn't stand out. I was a middle child, very much that middle child syndrome. So I felt um, greatly ignored most of my childhood. And I think that that's something that I would say was a fairly low point looking back on it, not realizing it at the time, of course. Were you ever resentful of her? Very. Yeah. And that'd be putting it nicely. Has, has that all uh, resolved? Have you guys come to terms as you have gotten older or is there still a bit of tension? For many years, I thought I forgave her and then I realized that I was just not really owning that I was still angry at her. And so... To be honest, currently I don't talk to my mom uh, because she isn't able to have a conversation in which I share how I'm feeling and she listens, mm. even with curiosity, even if she doesn't want to own any of it. And that's, I can't pretend to have a relationship with her if she's not willing to even have that conversation. So it just got super deep. Yeah. Well, well, it, it's, it's a reality of, of life, and, and uh, I doubt you're the only person who's ever gone through something like that. No, definitely but not. Maybe not in Maui with waterfalls on, on the bus ride, but still. Yeah. Um, but through all that struggle, you've become somebody. You've become Rose Fallen Snow Archer. Did I get that right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, so if I remember my story right from when you and I've talked in the past that uh, it was somewhere in high school when the whole culinary world emerged, mm-hmm. H- how did that come about? Well, partly because my mother was literally the worst cook I've ever met in my entire <laughs> life, and she hated it. She would take, and I'm not joking, leftovers from breakfast, like oatmeal, leftovers from lunch, like salad, and mix it in a bowl with eggs and cheese and put it in a casserole dish and bake it. And that's what we would have for dinner. So I started cooking at age 10. Almost every single night, I became the family cook. Mm. And I would watch cooking shows on TV, and I would try to mimic what they were making. And you know, granted, this is with limited ingredients as we were on welfare. But um, it was really interesting and fun for me. And I actually, looking back on it as an adult, I realized that I got attention when I cooked. People would say, oh my God, this is so good. My mm. brothers and sisters, my parents... And it was definitely a way to be seen. I cooked to be seen because I was quiet as a child. And, you know, like I said, I didn't get in trouble or anything. And so it was my unique piece to the family puzzle that got me seen. And so uh, I think emotionally it gave me such a charge on the inside that it made me really enjoy it a lot on the outside. 
It's also extremely conducive to my personality. I really like to use my hands. I like to be creative. Um, so when I was in high school, we had a career fair, I think my senior year even, and uh, Western Culinary Institute from Portland came to our career fair. And it never even occurred to me that being a chef was a job you could have. Um, being on welfare, we didn't go to a restaurant that I can remember even one time in my entire childhood, hmm. which created a sense of awe restaurants had, this allure, this magical like, world like you'd Disneyland. walk into. Yeah. Yes, exactly like a Disneyland effect is how I felt about restaurants for a long time, uh, that everyone could order whatever they wanted, that everyone could get something different, that they would just bring it to us, that we didn't have to do dishes afterwards. Mm-hmm. It was literally like a world that I had never experienced before. And so when uh, Western Culinary Institute came to Maui High School, um, it just let me know that that was a career option. And um, when I didn't have money to go to college, I moved to Tucson, Arizona, and I was there for about six months when I realized that I really didn't want to just you know, be a waitress. And uh, I decided to apply to Western Culinary Institute because it was the only one I'd ever heard of. Mm-hmm. And when they accepted me, I thought it was very special, and then I realized they accept anyone with a pulse and the money. But uh, so I went there. It was the only one I applied. And so I I, um, went to Western Culinary Institute when I was 18 years old. I had not turned 19. And I graduated in a year and a half with a two-year degree. Associates in culinary arts and perfect attendance. And in culinary school, there's no dorms, at least not at Western. And so you have to have an apartment and a car. And so for me, that meant I had to have a full-time job to pay for an apartment and a car. Mm-hmm. And so culinary school is Monday through Friday, 40 hours all mm-hmm. day long. You're cooking in kitchens, you're in labs, you're in theory talks. And so I literally worked 80 hours a week for a year and a half and had perfect attendance, which I am very proud of, as you can tell, wow. I'm still talking about it oh, oh, yeah. 18 years later. Yeah, no, really. But um, it, it was it was a big jolt to my system to be in Portland, drizzly and cold and overcast, coming from Maui and then living in Arizona for just under a year it was a big shock to my system, and I can't believe I didn't get sick more often with such a change. Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, after culinary school, I moved to Los Angeles. Again, I had a sister living there who had just graduated from Pepperdine, and she was, you know, had an apartment. She said I could come move in with her, and it was the only place I knew where I didn't, knew I didn't want to go back to Hawaii. And so I decided to use the advantage of doing a free internship as my foot in the door into the best restaurant I could get into. Um, somehow at night, I wasn't even 20 yet at 19, I realized that you enter your career at at a certain level somewhere, a certain caliber that's going to set the tone for the rest of your career. Mm -hmm. So if I start at Sherry's, I might hope to move up to the Shiloh Inn. Yeah. Sorry, Shiloh Inn. Yeah. Sherry's. But if I can use my internship as a way to let this 19 year old girl with minimal culinary experience other than school, into their kitchen and then I just work my tail off. Maybe they'll hire me and that will be the beginning of the caliber of career that I wanted. So I opened the Zagat Guide and I looked for the number one restaurant in Los Angeles and I applied to do an internship there. And at that time it was Spago's by Wolfgang Puck. Mm -hmm. And I went down to Los Angeles to visit my sister and I literally opened the back door and walked into their kitchen. And Lee Hefner, who's the executive chef for Spago's for the last forever, he um, uh, was shocked by my cojones. Brazenness. Bra- serious brazenness. <laughs> Who is this broad? And said, yes, you can do your internship here. I was ecstatic. Um, because no one had ever done their internship 
at Spago before, there was a whole ream of paperwork that my school required to make it an internship site. Mm -hmm. And uh, he didn't do any of the paperwork, even though I badgered him by phone constantly. And so I started freaking out. It was almost about the time I was graduating school. I had to have my internship set up. So I opened the Zagat Guide again and looked for restaurant number two, which was Campanile, which was owned by Mark Peel and Nancy Silverton. And um, I started calling Mark Peel on the phone uh, 10 o'clock at night when he would get off the line. And uh, I convinced him to let me do my internship there. He did the paperwork, and I ended up um, working at Campanile for a year after my internship. And I went to school for savory food, for regular chefing. Okay. And the only job they offered me was in the pastry kitchen under Nancy Silverton. And Nancy Silverton is by far the most acclaimed pastry chef in America today. Oh, wow. And I begrudgingly took the position under her, <laughs> which I laugh so hard now. Yeah, it's funny how that all played out. She's the most formative chef in my entire career. I liken my style to her, my uh, food theory, my uh, palate, what I'm searching for in flavor is 100% Nancy Silverton. And I literally begrudgingly worked for her for a year. And the whole time, <laughs> couldn't wait to get back to the hotline, the, you know, the hot food and yeah. the action. And um, so I quit after a year because I wanted to get to the action. And uh, I worked at a great French restaurant. And I wasn't making enough money because LA is very expensive, and I was making five eighty-eight an hour um, at minimum wage at the mm -hmm. time because I was so young, and um, and so I had become friendly with Sherry Yard, who's the pastry chef of Spago's at the farmers market because I shopped for the restaurant, uh, the French restaurant I was working at. I did all the procurement at the farmers market in Santa Monica for them, and I was twenty years old shopping with. $5,000 a week in produce at the farmer's market. And I loved it. I loved meeting the farmers and tasting before I bought peaches and plums and baby carrots and stuff. So anyway, Sherry Yard and I had become friendly because uh, she also shopped uh, at the farmer's market. And so I was looking for a second job and I asked her if she knew of any. And she said, I'd love to hire you in my pastry kitchen. So again, another phenomenal, famous pastry chef, Sherry Yard, I end up working for her um, part-time in her pastry kitchen as a second job. And uh, another very formative chef in my career. Um, and I guess your listeners don't know this, but I ended up becoming a pastry chef. Um, yes. We're, thoroughly yeah. and solely for a long time um, after realizing that it's where my talent really lied was in pastry. And yeah. although I am a chef and I do it all, I really think that my talent lies in pastry. So before we jump ahead to that, because there's a, there's there's some part of your life that we kind of skipped over, you know, the European part. But I want to. Oh, I haven't I'm, gone to Europe yet. I'm oh, still, I'm still in Los Angeles. Yeah, I know. We, uh, but you <laughs> fast forwarded. Yeah, you fast forwarded to Ben. You, you get it. Um, you're going out of order. Oh Jesus! Out of order. I didn't realize this was gonna be so serious. <laughs> That's very serious. Um, I want to back up real quick. Okay. Where did you get that brazenness? Where did you get that idea that you needed to start? off at a high level as opposed to starting at a everyday family restaurant? Hmm. I don't know, to be honest. I mean, did it, no, no one explain you? No one gave you the advice that you just kind of got stuck in your head? I think so. I know that I would read Bon Appetit magazine, Gourmet magazine when I was in culinary school, and I would look at the quality of food in these magazines and read about the restaurants, and I just knew that was... For me, okay. I wanted true fine dining. I okay, that makes more eat. sense. So you kind of you kind of set yourself an example, or th this is this is where I want to set my normal. Well, I said that I was going to be an executive chef in New York City by the time I was twenty five. Was my goal? 
Which is ridiculous. Which is <laughs> ambitious, mildly stated. Um, interesting. It's, it, it, and this is the story of just kind of from the beginning that we just talked about and and now now you've just got this fire and this passion was you talked about um food maybe being somewhat cathartic um was it more of a was it more of a release was it more of a passion was it more of just uh, a way out that that made sense for you at the time what would you say it was definitely a passion and still is to this day okay i am I read cookbooks like novels. I mean, I own more cookbooks than I know what to do with. Many of them I haven't even cooked anything Which is ironic because you don't need a, a single cookbook. And yet the inspiration that I get and reading, you know, even the short paragraph before the recipe that the chef wrote about the first time they made this recipe, mm -hmm. I love it. Am I too close? Okay. So uh, I love farmer's markets. I love restaurants. I love trying new food. I love traveling almost purely for the food mm. and the white sand beaches, but food is a big one. I really just love everything, everything that has to do with it. It's, it's beautiful to me. It's, um, it's the vitality of life. It's what our bodies run off of. And to put food in my body that means something, that matters, that's high quality, I think is just an expression of how one feels about themselves. I think people who have low self-esteem put low quality food into their bodies and people who care about their bodies put, they make a choice to spend more on higher quality, healthier, organic, if possible, ingredients. Well, I'm going to risk uh, you're laughing at me, but I'm a dad, so it's okay. One of uh, our favorite movies at home is the movie Ratatouille. <laughs> it's a great I, I, movie. Yeah, you, you've yeah, seen it, have of you? Course, um, yeah. But it's that line that's in this uh, movie, and for anyone who hasn't seen it, it, it's it's one of the Pixar movies. It's phenomenal for adults as well as kids, um, and it's about this uh, rat who is just an incredible chef and ends up cooking in a uh, uh, a French kitchen. And of course, he's a rat, but he's an incredible chef. So you know, you you can see the dilemma there. But um, but there's a, a critic in the movie who's set up as, as an evil person. You look at his office and it's in the shape of a coffin and is very, you know, kind of vampire-like with this look. And, but uh, at some point in the movie, he makes the comment that, and he says, and I'm not going to try and imitate his accent, but he says, um, I don't like food. I love it. And if I don't love it, I don't swallow. Mm. And whenever I watch that movie with my daughter, I think about that's that right there, that right there. So let's skip the politics and talk about social commentary and, and the, and the trend of overweight people in the country. Um, we all are eating for a number of reasons more than we should be. And if we all thought about like what you're talking about and what, uh, uh Anton Ego, the, the food critic in Ratatouille says is if I don't love it, I don't swallow. And you're talking about the quality of food. It, as a, can you, can you say it's, it's an art form? I think it's a choice. And I think as in any choice, you have to be aware the choice exists. And I think so many Americans don't even know that another choice exists, mm -hmm. so they don't make it. And I think, um, I don't know if you've been following Jamie Oliver and the food revolution, He's you know, changing uh, the food in schools mainly. He believes that our future with quality food relies with children. And so <clears throat> 
excuse me, so he's educating children. You know, he walked into a second grade classroom in Los Angeles and set up a table full of vegetables and literally not one child could tell him what one vegetable on the table was. Mm -hmm. He held up a potato and he says, do you know what this makes? And no one could answer. He said, have you eaten French fries? And every single kid raises their hands. And Mm -hmm. they said, do you know what French fries are made of? Nobody could answer. It's like we're missing this big piece about food education that 50 years ago was happening because Mm -hmm. people ate a lot closer to home. Children saw farms around them. They probably adventured onto one at some point. And that's just not happening anymore. So I think Americans don't even know that there's a choice. So it's not even about... I don't want to say the word ignorant because it's not ignorance. They just don't know. So they don't know to choose something better. Yeah. I think they would choose something better if they knew there was a choice. And it's funny that, you know, here we are uh, in central Oregon. We, um, there's a, you know, we're in a land full of hunters and, and I've always, especially since I've lived up here, I've always thought about, you know, food is what you get at the grocery store. Uh, cause I, I don't hunt, but I think about these people who are hunters um, some people like, you know, some hippies might, and I'm sorry if I'm offending anyone, but some hippies might say, well, you shouldn't go out and kill animals. I'm thinking there isn't a more natural way of finding food than going out and getting it yourself. And the hippies would agree. They would just say food is what you get at the farm. Yeah. Yeah. And of course I hear stories of my grandparents growing up on the farm and having chickens and, you know, my mother grew up. You know, when it was time to have a chicken, the, my grandmother would go out and grab a rooster and, or a, a hen and ring around the rosy and boom, and, mm-hmm. you know, dinner's getting made. Yep. And I think there's a departure. I think there's a disconnect of, of that little bird that's walking around right there. Well, that's, that's what we're having on Sunday night. Mm-hmm. I agree. And, and, I, and I don't think it's just children. And I have to ask myself, am I willing to go kill that bird and pluck it and do all that stuff? And I'd like to think I'd say yes. I would say no, personally. Would you? I'll admit it. Chicken? Totally. (laughs) (laughs) Pun intended. Exactly. Um, So... So let's let's get back to our timeline. You're training in Los Angeles. And at what point did you head off to Europe? And what did you do there? So I was working in a French restaurant in Hollywood called Le Du Café, which um, was known for its celebrity sightings more than its food, but its food was amazing. Mm-hmm. And in that kitchen, one of the cooks who worked there, he wasn't even the executive chef, um, was a French man named Thierry, and he had moved from Paris. He had owned a restaurant in Paris, and uh, him and I just became friends. He was an older man, probably in his 50s or something like that, and I was 20, And I became fascinated with his accent and his language. And so I started learning every single word. I'm sure you're the only one. What? To be fascinated with a French accent. Yeah. (laughs) It was just, you know, I grew up in Hawaii. There was very few accents other than pigeon. So, you know, people don't think about this, but Hawaii is a state. And yet it really is like a third world country that happens to be part of America. Mm -hmm. So when I moved to L.A., I read every billboard for months because it was so incredible to me, those huge signs, you mm-hmm. know, everywhere. So anyway, so Thierry and I became friends. He's teaching me vocabulary in French and I had a little uh, pocket index card notebook in my pocket and every day I would write five new French words and memorize how to say them in French. And after a year, I knew every single word in the kitchen. I couldn't make a sentence in French, you know, almost at all, but I knew the vocabulary words and he was just really taken by my passion for learning. And he said, if you want to move to Paris, 
I will give you, you know, a letter of recommendation to some chefs that I'm still friends with who own restaurants in Paris. Um, I'll try to help you find a place to live, etc. And so I, after that conversation, there was a special from Los Angeles to Paris for like $350 round trip. And I gave my notice that same day and bought a ticket to Paris with a round trip 30 days later. Wow. And I got a phone number from him of somebody that I could call when I got there to stay with her for a little while. It was a friend of his wife's. Which again is kind of a brazen move. So, uh, it gets worse. So Okay, I'll, I'll be quiet. I had $700. I had a maxed out credit card. I had a plane ticket and a phone number. And that's it. I had no visa. I didn't speak French. I didn't really have a place to live. I had no place to work. I was 21 years old by then. And I just decided I was going to go for it. And I literally had nothing to fall back on. If I, at the end of the month, had not established a place to live and a place to work, I had that round trip ticket going back to LA and I would have had to live on my sister's couch and start waitressing or try to find a cooking job and begin to build it all back up again. Mm -hmm. So I decided to take the chance. I was 21 and every great chef had a European experience and I thought I'm just going to go there for six months and get it on my resume and see Paris and come back. And I ended up living in Europe for four and a half years in three different countries and had just an amazing time. And of course, you know, being young and in my 20s and full of you know, stars in my eyes. I thought I was going to be working under all these amazing famous chefs. Mm-hmm. And some of my best jobs were in little restaurants under no famous chef, but the chef was making homemade food the same way his family had made it for thousands of years. And those were some of my best memories. And the things I learned about food the most from were those experiences. But truly what I learned the most about was me. And I left thinking I was going to figure it all out about food and I ended up figuring out a lot about me. Interesting. And, and, um, you know, try and pull out a, a lesson from that. You, you said, um, I forget your exact quote, but you basically, you hit, the stakes were high. It was to succeed or not. Um, and, 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 uh, and you went for it. You made the choice to, to try. I did. I always, whenever I'm faced with a decision like that, and it always seems that I make decisions, not just one big one, but I always seem to like Break up with a boyfriend, change jobs, and change houses all at the same time. And I'm not sure why that. And change happened. your hairstyle too. Seriously, yes. <laughs> all, get some new all shoes. At the same time. <laughs> so, but I always, when I'm faced with a big decision like that, for me, what brings me the most comfort in being able to make the hard decision is to imagine the worst case scenario and mm-hmm. say, if I don't find a job, if I run out of money, if I can't find a place to live, I'll just fly back, and I'll live at my sister's and. I'll start again. And I would just, I think one of the things growing up on welfare and being so poor and literally having nothing taught me was that you won't die. You can, and I know how to work. I'm smart. I'm outgoing. I think I have talent. I can always start up again. And that has brought me this sense of maybe you call recklessness, but my ability to be able to risk. But because I could live with the consequences if I failed. Yeah. And and you say recklessness, but I don't think it's reckless at all to take a stab at something. And meanwhile, you have a backup plan. That that seems pretty calculated. Yeah. And the backup plan was something I could live with. It didn't seem horrible yeah. to me. It, not ideal, but it was tolerable. I think I'm fairly low maintenance when it comes right down to it. If I have to live on someone's couch and have my clothes in a suitcase and waitress at night and cook during the day for a while, that doesn't actually sound that bad to me. And, and some people would think of that as, as um, intolerable, but then again, you have a perspective of 
mm-hmm. what your childhood was. Definitely. And and life goes on. Definitely. Interesting. So these these big big decisions that seemed risky, have they really been that scary? I wasn't I don't think I was scared at all. The scariest part of moving to Paris, to be honest, was the cab ride from Orly Airport into Paris because I had called that friend of a friend mm-hmm. who she said I could stay at her house for a little while. And I had $700 and she said, here's my address, take a cab. Since I had no idea how to use public transportation, everything's sure. in French, I speak no French and she couldn't come and meet me for whenever my flight came in. Mm-hmm. So I hailed a taxi. I had no idea where her house was or how far away the airport was from the city. And I was in the taxi for over an hour. My taxi ride was $77. Mm. Like, so 10% of my life savings on yes. the taxi ride. Yeah. And I'm sitting there and I don't know the conversion from French francs to dollars. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting in the back and I'm staring at the meter ticking and ticking. And we're driving and driving and driving. And panic set in that this could be hours. This could cost me $400. Like, I seriously had no idea how much it was going to cost. And I was panicked because, I mean, what if the taxi ride was $400? Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, so I guess in comparison to that, 77 isn't a lot. But still, 10% of your life savings that you're going to try to make a start in a new country with was pretty horrifying. But I think about those people who are on the fence about whether they should try uh, a entrepreneurial endeavor or um, take up a new hobby that, that appears risky or... People who sit there like, oh, I just don't know. I just don't know. It, your decisions seemed so easy. I also want to comment that I didn't have any children. I didn't have a husband. I didn't have a mortgage. <clears throat> Excuse me. So those decisions were f- fully based on me succeeding or me failing. And the only person that it would inconvenience would be maybe my sister who has to let me sleep on her couch. Mm-hmm. Where today, obviously, my decisions are much more thought out and calculated being that I have other people in my life to take care of and be responsible for. And it would not be okay to have me and my son sleep on my sister's couch because we would get no sleep. Sure. Sure. <laughs> so, but is that to say that you're no longer risky? Oh no. Or, I, oh no, I'm risky. Okay. I think everybody has a different level of calculated risk and I don't live my, uh, my life through fear at all. I live my life through hope. Hope is my guiding light. And as long as I have hope, you know, kind of that will, there's a way thing. As long as I have hope, I've got almost nothing to lose on trying something. Hmm. Um, what did your training in um, the culinary world, be it L.A., Europe, wherever, what do you think you learned from learning how to cook? Or you say you're spending time in Europe, you learn more about yourself what did you learn that you didn't learn growing up? Hmm. Well, I definitely will say that, especially my younger years of cooking, is I definitely became a fighter. Where, you know, I described growing up in Hawaii as I was very quiet and I tried to remain unseen so that I wouldn't get attention, I wouldn't be bullied. Um, I realized that in kitchens, that's not going to work. And I definitely became a fighter as I was usually the only girl working in a kitchen with all men. And I was sexually harassed at every single job I had for the first five years, um, whether it be overt 
you know, grabbing or touching or jokes or innuendos, all of it. Um, it's just the uh, kitchens are not known for being extremely professional workplaces Mm -hmm. and, you know, being a young, attractive girl, I learned to fight. I learned to talk back. I learned to set boundaries. I learned Mm -hmm. uh, that I was worth fighting for and I didn't need everyone to like me all of a sudden. And, um, I definitely, uh, became super passionate about doing a good job and not letting anyone stand in my way. And as a result, I moved up the ranks fairly quickly. I was a sous chef at 22 years old um, of a large hotel in Europe. And And just for the sake of clarity, a sous chef means? mm, Sous is the word for under. And so it's the under chef, under the executive chef, the chef's assistant. So so number two. Number two. Yep. Mm -hmm. And so I was probably disliked by all the males that worked under me, most of them older than I. I was a girl, I was younger than them, and I was bossy, to put it mildly. <laughs> and I think they hated me. And uh, I learned how to put on a big front in front of them and act like it didn't matter. Of course, it did matter, and it hurt my feelings greatly at home, but I also wasn't willing to sacrifice the job that I knew that needed to be done for uh, shrinking to fit, shrinking who I was to make them like me. I was, that wasn't on the table for me. And, and so in this world of the culinary world, again, going back to that movie Ratatouille, the, um, you know, they talk about the, you know, the cooks are pirates and artists. Um, Anthony Bourdain, great, love great, him. oh God, great book. Um, I'm not a chef and I loved his book. Um, but, uh, he talks about, and I forget what word he used specifically, but I'll just say he, that, that the, uh, the back of the house, the kitchen folk are tend to be kind of misfits in in a in a in a good way, not a not a just a drags to society type of misfits, but just kind of like the you, you describe it better than me because I'm, I'm going to get myself in trouble. But how did how did you navigate through those murky waters? Well, I will definitely say that being a chef, the career is changing big time. Um, it's kind of being a rock star now it seems it is I mean the celebrity chef thing is going out of control which cracks me up because truly working as a chef in a kitchen is the most unglamorous thing in the entire world except for the 10 minutes a day where you may go to the front of the house and everyone claps at the end Mm -hmm. of a plated dinner or something Mm -hmm. that feels glorious and that's what we see on TV but the truth is I mean you are hauling slimy, gross, oily rubber mats out to the back of the restaurant to be hosed off at one o'clock in the morning. You're Mm -hmm. filthy, you're sweaty, you're exhausted. Uh, You've heard more curse words in one night than anyone should hear in a lifetime. You have like second degree burns all over your hands. Seriously, I still have scars. I would go to the doctor and they were always like, um... Were you abused? (laughs) There's something you'd like to talk to us about. I'm like... Do you feel safe at home? Seriously. (laughs) Yes, I know I have burns up and down my forearm, Mm -hmm. but it's because I have a dish on my menu that requires me to shove my arm to the very back of a 500 gear oven. And when I'm busy, I just end up hitting my arm against the oven rack. Mm -hmm. Seriously. And singe a whole new line. Yeah. So, yeah, it's very funny. Mm -hmm. But very... It's brutal. It's tough. The hours are horrible. The pay is horrible. There's no benefits. Um... In the past, chefs generally became chefs because it was behind the scenes. They were people who could not be seen in front of other people because of their lack of. But yet they manners. made. But yet they made food at five-star restaurants. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes, um, and yes, yeah, some of the most amazing chefs, who I think are pure geniuses, are also very socially unacceptable, as human beings, and. Yeah. 
So it's, it's just Hence the artist. <laughs> exactly, exactly. The mad scientist yeah. of food, yeah. for real. So uh, it is not the career people think it is on the outside. And I always get worried when a parent tells me, my teenage son or daughter wants to go to culinary school. They want to be a chef. Will you talk to them? And I always say, I am the last person they should talk to because I'll probably convince them not to. Wait a minute. Is the Food Network lying to us? Yes. Oh, my goodness. How funny. It's a scam. <laughs> it's a scandal. <laughs> well, from the cooking world, um, the, you moved to Bend. You became, you know, you became a chef. Um, you became a teacher. You became a mom. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things I want to talk about, uh, especially with you know, teaching and in, in a, in a um, future plans you have, let's talk about how people can become better cooks. You talked about uh, the quality of food, uh, people making choices, smart choices. Um, you know, if you don't love food, then don't swallow it type of thing. Um, what, can you, what are three things, and you can choose whatever number you want, but what are three things that would make people be better cooks, better eaters? Mm-hmm. I think the number one thing that everyone should start with is just become aware. Just look at what you're putting in your body and start asking yourself, do I love this? Is this good enough for me? And if it's not, you know, a lot of people just eat to survive. They don't really think about what they're putting in their body. And granted, there's going to be varying levels of passion for food. Mine is obviously huge. Mm -hmm. Other foodies, that's their hobby. Someone who's passionate about golf might not care that much about food and a cheap burger is fine for them. Mm -hmm. So this isn't going to be everyone's passion. It doesn't have to be your hobby and your passion to just notice and make some better choices. So the very first thing, not even being a chef, but just eating better is just to start noticing and asking questions. Is that just looking at labels in the supermarket or is that just becoming more, um, aware of what the food means to your body? I mean, cause to be honest, I like food, I like cooking and, and, uh, so I, I have a little bit of that passion, but it can become overwhelming for a person who's not that into it. And I could see that. And for someone who's not that into it, I think that there's been this idea that cooking is super time consuming and hard. And I would think for people who just want to eat a little bit better, but don't want to spend a lot of time doing it, learning a few cooking techniques, and they can learn this online or going to a cooking class or reading a cookbook, but finding a few cooking techniques that actually makes food dinner get on the table much faster. And it can be super simple and it can be the best food. Some of the best dishes that I've ever had have been the simplest. What's an example of some simple skills that would have a huge impact in the home kitchen? One of the fastest dinners I make is roasted chicken thighs with roasted root vegetables with like thyme and olive oil and some garlic. And all of it, I mean, I chop up the root vegetables in whatever random size they come out in. It doesn't really matter. Root vegetables like potatoes and... Mm, more Potatoes can be starchy and not super great for you. So I lean heavier towards things like carrots, turnips, parsnips, okay. uh, beets. And I chop them up roughly. Doesn't have to be pretty. And I throw chicken thighs, bones, skin, everything on onto one baking sheet. 
and I drizzle olive oil all over all of it. I chop up rosemary or thyme or some other herb, and I throw that all over it, and I do salt and pepper, and I throw it in a 450-degree oven all on one pan. So it's one cutting board, mm-hmm. one knife, and one pan. And I throw that in the oven, and in 20 minutes, I've got roasted chicken and root vegetables. And the beauty of that dish is that as the chicken starts to cook, some of the fat from the chicken starts to um, turn into liquid and go into the pan, and those vegetables absorb that chicken juice and some of that chicken fat, and so they get flavored by the roasting of the vegetables on the same pan with the chicken. And so they benefit each other. And it's literally in 20 minutes, I have a home cooked dinner Mm -hmm. of roasted chicken and vegetables. And that's things like that. I think people are afraid of high temperatures and yet the higher your temperature, the faster something cooks, hence caramelizing the outside, which adds a ton of flavor and trapping in moisture as opposed to think about low, low temp cooking, dehydrating, essentially. Gotcha. The lower your oven, the drier your food's going to be because the longer it's going to take to cook. And during that time, moisture's turning into steam, which turns into gas, which goes away. So gotcha. your food's drier and it took longer. So higher temp, faster cooking, more moisture, more flavor from caramelization. Okay. So turn up the heat in your oven, roast things on pans. Um, so any vegetable, asparagus, zucchini, any vegetable you can imagine can be roasted on a sheet tray, on a baking sheet. Okay. What, what else? What else can take someone who, who mixed oatmeal and salad and put it in a casserole for dinner? Um, besides that, what else, what else could they learn to do that would make it amazing and simple and easy? And simple. I think that uh, being a chef, it's very hard for me to cook dinner for two. Like seriously, practically yeah. impossible. Yeah. So I cook batches of There's everything. no such thing as personal paella. Oh my gosh, no. <laughs> so if I'm going to make pork chile verde, I'm going to make a huge pot of it. And if I'm going to go and buy tomatillos, I might as well buy three pounds instead of half a pound. It's exact same amount of time to shop, exact same amount of time uh, to cook it almost. It does take a tiny bit more time because there's a little bit more chopping, but you know that economy of scale, it's not twice as much for twice as many servings. It's just a little bit more. And so I make large batches of home-cooked braised meats and uh, stews, and then I freeze them in mostly in like Nancy's yogurt container size mm-hmm. containers, and I label it with masking tape, and I write what it is, and I throw it in the freezer. And if I do that three or four times over a couple months, I just have tons of meals in my freezer that are homemade and delicious and done to maximize the time spent yes and then you have a home-cooked meal so one of my favorite things to do is take you know a homemade chili where i've roasted the chilies and roasted the garlic and i may have spent three hours on this pot of chili on a sunday afternoon but i made 20 meals 10 containers that feed two so my husband and i have dinner in a container and then i just you know one of those logs of organic pre-cooked polenta Mm-hmm. I throw that in a pot with a hunk of cream cheese and some water and I stir it up and it cooks and it turns into creamy polenta in about five minutes. And I defrost a container of pork chili verde or, you know, regular chili and I warm it up and I ladle that over creamy polenta and it is worthy of a fine dining restaurant and it literally took me seven minutes. So, so your husband has no right to complain that you're just heating up leftovers? Zero. Okay. Has he ever said that to you? Uh, not that I'm going to admit. I, I'm still in his house right now. Um, so it's cooking in batches planning. I think planning is a big one. You know, that whole fail to plan, plan to fail kind mm -hmm, of adage. If I'm going to make roasted vegetables one night to have it with the roasted chicken, I'm going to roast twice as many. And the next night I'm going to put those same roasted vegetables that are already done and in my refrigerator, I'm going to warm them up and I'm going to throw them over a green salad, you know, with 
some grilled chicken that might have been from the night before or you know, seared tofu or something. And so it's about prepping extra and then turning the leftovers into something new the next night so it doesn't feel like leftovers. You know, making a plan. If you're going to cut mm-hmm. up all those vegetables, you might as well cut a little bit more and roast them all at the same time. I, or I might make homemade pizza and throw already roasted vegetables on the pizza. So it's just about maximizing your prep time by making enough prep yeah. for more than one meal. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, uh, so what are your plans now for the future? Well, my son is three, which means he's super independent. Insert bossy right here. <laughs> I wonder and, where he got that. Oh yeah. He's three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I am actually interested in going back into the career field and I'm going to teach a course this summer at the Cascade Culinary Institute, a pastry course, um, one term to see how I like it and to see mm-hmm. if that's something I think I could, I could do longer than just a summer term. And, uh, Uh, I'm excited. Um, I've taught a ton of cooking. I was a culinary director at Allison's Kitchen for the last year before it closed, Mm. and I taught a majority of the cooking classes. And although I loved it, and I I took your knife class, it was great. I know, I remember. (laughs) We made that salsa that you loved. Oh, Oh, yeah, it was good. So I loved it, but the students, even though I had some regulars, most of the students came for one class, and I never saw them again. And a lot of the classes were also demo classes, so I was cooking in front of a group and they were just watching. So I didn't actually get to see them, you know, are Mm. they really getting what I'm getting at with this cooking technique? So I'm excited about the possibility of doing hands-on classes with students that are the same for a longer period of time. So I could see them improve over time and really be able to use, um, my skill of, uh, fixing things. What do we do when this goes wrong and how do we pull it back together or what let's think outside the box and we burnt the puff pastry, which, what could we do instead? Problem solving skills, mm. um, that are super necessary when you're working in a professional kitchen. Cause if you burn all the desserts, you got to still serve dessert and what are you going to do? And yeah. so anyway, those are the things that are very fun for me. So I'm looking forward to having a regular set of students. And so I'm hoping that it's a, um, a win-win for, for me and the culinary Institute and that it's something that I can continue doing part-time for a while. Um, I also have lofty goals of creating a website that was all video tutorials of people cooking. So instead of going to a a recipe blog where there's a recipe, there would be short videos, um, you know, less than five minutes long. Like what we just talked about, you know, as far as, you know, like how to make something quickly. Exactly. That'd be great. Exactly. And so people would pay a few bucks a month to have a membership on my site and that would give them access to all the videos and you could search, you know, I want to make Burblanc sauce. I want to grill asparagus. I want to whatever. And there'd be literally very short videos showing people. I think the value of visuals in cooking is paramount. I'm going to have to insert my name for beta testing on that. I'd, I'd love to help you. You got it. Okay. Super. Um, you it, can be the guy in the background going, mmm, this is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Like I'll, all those cooking shows yeah, and everyone just nods their head in I'll, unison. I'll do the sound clips, yeah. yeah. I'll be that guy. <laughs> I, I could do that. Um, Hawaii, Portland, Arizona, Europe, L.A. How did you end up here in Central Oregon? So the last town that I lived in in Europe was called Garmisch-Partenkirchen. And it Wait, is I'm sorry, say that again? Garmisch-Partenkirchen. Everyone got that? Okay, continue, please. <laughs> it's actually two separate towns, but they're so close together, they've now just kind of merged Garmisch <laughs> and Partenkirchen. Gotcha. I think we might say Partenkirchen, actually, to be honest. 
So I worked in a very small town. It was about 45 minutes south of Munich, right on the border, border with Austria. And it was a very small mountain town, a super high tourist destination. It sat at the foot of the Zugspitze, which is the tallest mountain in Germany, which has a glacier, so it is year-round skiing. And I worked at a resort hotel there. I was uh, the sous chef, and then I became the executive pastry chef there. That was my first full-time pastry position. Mm. And I loved uh, the community. I loved the size of the town. And I really loved the access to outdoor activities year-round, whether mm-hmm. it was skiing or hiking in the summer, et cetera. So when I moved back to America, I decided that I needed to find that type of town in America. And uh, my fiancé at the time, we were in our early 20s, mid-20s, we did a road trip around the Northwest and stopped at 10 different towns that all had the potential of being very similar to Garmisch, but in America, and Bend won. And what were some of the other towns that you guys, uh, or that narrowly yeah. it, uh, didn't make the cut? Uh, Bellingham, Washington was on the list. Mm. Ashland, Oregon was on the list. Boise, Idaho was on the list. Um, i trying to think. I can't think where but, else. But, but Bend won out. It did. It did, and I'm so glad it did. Yeah, what what do you love about Central Oregon? So besides what you I'm, know, we just discussed. Yeah, I'm sure everybody says when you talk about the good life in Central Oregon, is immediately going to talk about the amazing amount of recreational activities that we can do and the Check. miles and miles of trails of mountain biking, cross country skiing, downhill, Check. all in the same day. Check. I sound like a radio ad for <laughs> Visit Bend, but to be honest, my biggest draw for wanting to come to Central Oregon was it was a size of town that I felt like I could become a part of the community. I could become a regular at my grocery store. It was a a, a low crime, very connected community, but it wasn't a small town that the fine dining restaurant was Rose's Diner. Mm -hmm. We happened to have incredibly highly educated, well-traveled residents in this town, which demand higher quality restaurants, uh, shops, shopping, um, lectures, tours. You know, we have TEDx Bend now that I just went to a couple days ago. Oh, yeah. I mean, we are really a town of 80,000. Go to another town of 80,000 and look for, you know, Ariana and TEDx Bend. Mm -hmm. And it just blows me away that we are this small podunk town of size, and yet the quality of the residents here is so high. Yes. Not the quantity, not the snootiness, not the money, the quality. The quality of the residents. And as a chef, I knew that if I wanted to do the same high quality fine dining food that I was doing in LA and in Europe and in Texas, I was in Texas for a stint before I moved to Bend, that there was going to have to be fine dining restaurants. You know, one of my criteria was, could you get the New York Times delivered to your doorstep in the town I lived in? Because if you couldn't, I wasn't going to live there because that was a precursor for the kind of people that would be living in that town. And, you know, thankfully, yes, it might mm-hmm. be only the Sunday, but that's okay. It's something. But um, so I was really thrilled that it was a small town with big flavor. Well put. Yeah. <laughs> pun, pun intended. Yes. Um, with your diverse experiences, um, traveling all over the world and growing up the way you did, um, what is your definition of the good life? You know, the older I get, the more it becomes true for me as I was so incredibly success-driven in my 20s. And, you know, don't forget I was going to be an executive chef in New York City by the time I was 25. Mm-hmm. The older I get, the more I realize that it's really 
about connection, that I believe that's what we're here on this planet for, is connection with other people and having authentic, real connections. And so the connection with my husband, with my son, with my close friends, having real, authentic, genuine relationships with them is the most important thing to me. And I think that Bend is very conducive to having those kinds of relationships. Good answer for being put on the spot. Um, so now here's another question to put you on the spot. How are you living your good life? Well, I have been taking advantage of, you know, being a stay-at-home mom. I have worked this ridiculous career with incredible long hours for my whole life. And three years ago when I gave birth to my son, I became a stay-at-home mom. And people who knew me before might have, you know, been shocked by that. You know, are you bored? Are you feeling I'm, I'm one of those. I'm one of those. Exactly. <laughs> and... I was so ready to fully do the motherhood thing that every moment with my son was just a delight. And people used to say, being a mom is the hardest job you'll ever love. And I was really ready for it to be really hard. And compared to being a chef, I have to say, I also have an extremely good child for the most part, great eater, great sleeper, that it has been a, I felt like being on vacation to be a stay-at-home mom. People might be used to getting off at five on the dot in their job, but that certainly never was the case in my job my whole life. And getting up at one in the morning and was familiar to me. And I have just really loved every single minute of it. And I think because I had so much traveling and so much work under my belt already in a full successful career, I didn't feel like I was missing out on anything. I'm really glad I waited until my mid-30s to have a son. And I knew myself better and I already had a lot of adventures. I really felt like this was the right time, the right place to do this part of my life. And I've loved it. And I've not yearned to be doing anything else but being with him. And you asked how I nurture that good life central organ idea that I just threw at you. Mm -hmm. And I would say that with this extra time that I have had, I have um, done a lot of uh, continuing education because I think I'm forever a student. Mm -hmm. I became a master gardener very passionate about organic gardening. So I did the year-long master gardening program. I just finished a seven-month-long yoga teacher training program. Not that I want to teach yoga, but I just really wanted to deepen my own personal yoga practice. And through all those experiences, I just am learning so much more about myself and my community. I'm meeting so many people in my community that I had not come across, you know, being stuck in the back of a kitchen. And I'm using those experiences to deepen my understanding of myself and also of humankind. I've done a lot of um, you know, personality typing workshops that talk about personality types and really accepting and seeing how we're all different and yet we're all very connected and not expecting everyone to be like me makes my life so much less frustrating <laughs> because everyone's not like me and everyone is like them and I'm curious about them as opposed to disgruntled they're not like me. Okay, so let's uh, let's finish off with our my my rapid fire questions that kind of help us get to know who you are a little bit better, as if we didn't already. But uh, number one, what is your favorite flavor? Vanilla bean. Oh, that's such a vanilla answer. I didn't expect that at all. Okay. Interesting. Um, no, curried no. pistachio nuts. I'm just kidding. There, that's that's much better. Uh, I kid, I kid. Uh, what is your least favorite flavor? Black licorice. Hmm. Sinful. Oh, I totally agree. Um, what motivates you? 
heart-opening exercises, anything that opens my heart, anything that makes my passion tingle. All right. What frustrates you? Misplaced judgment and inefficiency. <laughs> oh, I want to ask a follow-up question. Uh, but, but, I'm, but, I'm not going, but, I, but I'm not going to. Uh, <laughs> we're just going to you know, let the audience wonder. Um, what guides you? My heart. And what distracts you? My heart. <laughs> <laughs> what inspires you? Mm. People rising up out of nothing. The rags to riches story. The lotus flower in the mud. The unexpected beauty when it's not expected, when the support wasn't there or the education or the family background and somebody excels anyway and becomes a really beautiful person. I mean, Against the odd story. Totally. Great. If, if you hadn't become a chef, what do you think you would have done? At this point in my life, I would say organic farming because I would love to have like an organic vegetable farm. But at the time probably a teacher. Hmm. That was the second runner up. I had a few amazing teachers that really inspired me to become more than my welfare background. And I thought that it would mean a lot to be able to give that back to another child. Which is probably why you're doing some of the things you're doing now. Probably. Uh, what is your single motivating purpose? And these were not meant to be easy. I know. I would say the ability to unabashedly and without fear and with total vulnerability love other people and myself equally. That's a pretty solid answer, I have to say. Um, and what do you hope to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates someday? I love you. Another solid answer. Um, and last thing, do you have anything that you'd like to say or any advice that you'd like to offer uh, as far as uh, living the good life or any... Anything you'd like to share before we depart? Hmm, we've talked about so many things today. You know, I know it's super cliche and everybody says, you know, find a job that you love. Don't figure out how to love your job because you might not. Mm -hmm. But I really think that rings true for me. And the second thing I would say is there's always a way if you don't have money to go to college or if you don't have money to go and pay for that experience, find another way. You know, there are people who wanted to go to TEDx and couldn't afford it. So they volunteered and they got to watch the whole entire thing mm. by volunteering. Find a way to get what you want if going straight through the front doors isn't happening for you. I did that by working under famous chefs, willing to take any position in their kitchen just to be around them and then working as hard as I could to try to move up. It's about humbling yourself enough to start at the very bottom if that's what it takes. If you really want it, there's a way. It doesn't have to be about lack of funds or opportunity. There's a way. Well, thank you very much, Rose, for talking to us today. And um, I can't wait for you to have uh, some more uh, uh, endeavors released and launched so that we can come back uh, and meet with you again and see what you're up to next time. I would love it. Thank you, Jeremy. Awesome. It's a very cool thing you're doing. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. I, 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 hope, uh, I hope it uh, helps some people out there as well. Me too. All right. Thank you very much for joining us with the Good Life Center Oregon podcast, and uh, we'll catch you next time. <laughs>